Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your genes. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we talk about environmental brain toxins with Nadie Brady, and Eva Cox talks about science and civil society. But first up, here's the news. Internet of Hacked Things Google Home is a voice-operated, internet-connected device that reads you information from the web and lets you order and play things from online. Burger King broadcast a TV ad in the USA with voice commands that would hijack viewers' Google Home devices to look up Wikipedia and read out loud a long description of their Whopper burger. You're watching a 15-second Burger King ad, which is unfortunately not enough time to explain all the fresh ingredients in the Whopper sandwich. But I got an idea. Okay, Google, what is the Whopper burger? Burger King had previously entered wonderfully glowing descriptions of this burger because anyone can edit Wikipedia. Unfortunately for Burger King, anyone can edit Wikipedia. People quickly changed the entry to say nasty things about Burger King's Whoppers, saying the ingredients included turnout clippings and a medium-sized child. Whoppers about Whoppers. Some journalists verified that they could add words to the Wikipedia entry and minutes later they would be read out loud by their Google Home devices in response to the TV ads. Within a few hours, Google had blocked the voice on the ad from triggering Google Home. But Burger King wasn't done. The next night, they broadcast the same TV ad with the voice changed from a man's to a woman's to fool the Google block. It worked. Of course, as a stunt, It not only gets people talking about Burger King, but also Google Home. Wikipedia responded by restoring the Whopper Burger entry to how it looked before the ad campaign, and locked it. Google had previously been criticised for playing audio ads for a Disney film through the Google Home speakers when people asked for the day's news. There's also news reports of a six-year-old girl asking her family's Amazon Echo device for a dollhouse, and the order went through. The reporter on San Diego's CW6 News repeated the story with the full Amazon Echo activation word and command. Viewers with Amazon Echoes reported that their devices had all purchased dollhouses for them. This sort of thing quickly becomes annoying. Care for some smart salt? Get smalted with an internet-connected smart salt shaker with coloured lights and a speaker. Stream your favourite music to set the tone of the party. Set the right ambience with a colour-changing mood light to add fun, flair or romance. Even surprise your guests and their palate with a fun, interactive way to dispense salt to season the dishes. Combine smalt with Amazon Echo and let you-know-who do the rest. With smalt, every meal is a celebration. And life can't get better than that. How about a smart juicer? Juicero is a $400 juice dispensing machine that only works when it has an active internet connection over Wi-Fi. 
which squeezes expensive custom juice bags to give you a glass of juice. Juicero founder Doug Evans says he spent three years building a dozen prototypes before devising Juicero's patent-pending press. There are 400 custom parts, there's a scanner, a microprocessor, a wireless chip with wireless antenna. Juicero attracted over $100 million of venture capital investment, including investment from Alphabet Incorporated, the company that owns Google. So couldn't you just squeeze the juice bags with your hands and bypass the $400 Juicero? The CEO explains in three points why not. The closed-loop food safety system allows us to remotely disable produce packs if there is, for example, a spinach recall. A spinach recall? In these scenarios, we're able to protect our consumers in real time. Consistent pressing of our produce packs calibrated by flavour to deliver the best combination of taste and nutrition every time. Connected data so we can manage a very tight supply chain because our product is live, raw produce and has a limited lifespan of about eight days. If the juice bag is even one day older, the Juicero won't squeeze it for your drink by having the juicer read a QR code printed on the bag. Unless you cover the QR code with a sticker with a changed date. Of course, if Juicero can remotely disable your juice bags over the internet, then so can hackers. And if your internet goes down, then no juice for you. Investors were horrified by Bloomberg's story about Juicero, where reporters showed how they could squeeze the bags gently with their hands and get a glass of juice. Investors said they were hoping it would be harder to get juice from the bags to justify the expense of the Juicero with its four tons of force juice press. The juice bags appear to have fruit pulp inside rather than just juice. Who needs fruit? when for $400 you can have Juicero. Smart diapers. Diapers are what Americans call nappies. Some smart diapers use a QR patch on the front that you scan with your phone once a day. But Monet smart diapers connect to your phone with Bluetooth as soon as the diaper gets soiled so you don't miss a minute. Monet's algorithm analyzes the data, looking for signs of urinary tract infections, dehydration, and developing kidney problems. Monet's sensor goes outside the diaper and can detect feces and urine by monitoring a combination of temperature, humidity, and gas. Do they make one for adults? When your kids outgrow wearing diapers, you can use the device as a temperature and gas sensor in your house that connects to your phone, if by that point it doesn't smell pretty bad itself. Whether a doctor can really tell anything useful about your baby's health and development through a graph of when they soil their diapers is yet to be proved. I don't want to imagine what hackers could do with dirty diaper alerts and graphs on your phone. Ones and zeros from ones and twos. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Dr Nady Brady works at the Centre for Healthy Brain Aging at the University of New South Wales. He studies the effects of environmental neurotoxins on the brain and their role in the ageing process. 
His main focus is the nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide NAD system that's disrupted in cells by environmental toxins and which has lower levels as we age. NAD is involved in DNA and cell repair, inflammation and converting glucose into energy in the cell. This is the first part of a series of talks about Nady and his work. What we were working on was uh, environmental toxins and how they can affect the brain. Several neurogenic diseases have only a very small percent of uh, that's based on genetics. So 95% of most neurogenic diseases are actually due to sporadic causes. In particular, ALS, where there's been involvement of a neurotoxin called BMAA. And have you, have you uh, been aware about what BMAA is? BMAA, I believe it's thought to be caused by algae. That's right, that's right. And there's another one, microcystin. Microcystin is normally a liver, a liver toxin. However, it can also cause a, a tau hyperphosphorylation, which is also a pathological hallmark of Alzheimer's disease and ALS, and also in multiple sclerosis. So there's also been hotspots that have been located where all the large concentrations of, of green algae is found, particularly up in Griffith and near, near the farming areas. Are these areas likely to have a higher rate of muscular dystrophy or multiple sclerosis? That's right, that's right, ALS and a bit of Alzheimer's well. However, no one's actually made a, a, a major investigation on this. It's, so, so it's, it's rumored hotspots, like people talk about it. So is this something that you've so, started on? Yeah, so, so we started to see, well, can these toxins actually cause uh, neuronal damage which mimics that in, in, in dementias, for example? And we did find, at least in cells, that these uh, environmental toxins actually activate certain pathways and c- that can lead to the certain pathology which is reported in, in, in diseases. Are there potential treatments for these neurotoxins? Uh, right now, not yet. For example, in BMAA, with BMAA treatment, one of the main things that it can do is uh, increase activation of the NMDA receptor. And now that leads to excited toxicity, which is common in all neurogenic diseases where there is increased uptake of intracellular calcium that can lead to uh, increased free radicals in inflammation and eventually neuronal cell death. Now, with BMAA, there's a group in, U- in UTS where they're, they're saying that they can give L-serine, which is another amino acid, which can compete with BMAA, so therefore reduce BMAA toxicity. However, while that's good, L-serine itself is an excitotoxin at high levels. So while we solve one problem, we can actually lead to another problem in this case. The microcystin, microcystin, it's a liver hepatotoxin. It's, it's the main one in algae. But like mostly, most reports have it, have it destroying cattle, cattle and farming and farming animals uh, and things like that. But what can uh, be used against that is increasing glutathione levels because microcystin actually inhibits a particular pr- uh, step in the glutathione synthesis pathway. Now, glutathione is one of the most important endogenous antioxidants in the body. So here we see another relationship where oxidative stress plays a critical role in actually destroying the cells by these toxins. That was Nady Brady at the University of New South Wales Centre for Healthy Brain Ageing, talking about environmental toxins that cause brain diseases. Please be warned that sociologist Eva Cox uses some... And now, back to the March for Science. Adult language in her speech about science and civil society. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my great pleasure to introduce a great national advocate for civil society. I'm of course talking about Eva Cox, AO, public commentator, change agent, passionate feminist. She presented the Boyer Lectures on ABC Radio National. 
1995, a truly civil society was the name of those Boyer lectures, but she has been working for civil society ever since and continues to do so. She's involved in setting up a good society network to make society more civil and currently is working in an honorary position at the University of Technology at the Indigenous House of Learning, Jumbunna. Please welcome Eva Cox. I'd like to start by paying my respects to the First Nations that actually came to Australia long before any of us did and had a much better attitude towards what science was about. It was integrated into their lives in the same way that the arts were integrated into their lives. They had a coherent view of what mattered and they didn't separate it out in ways which allowed you to sort of turn the arts into something which is just a form of commerce, turn, turn the science into something which you could just ignore. I think we need to get back to the idea and learn from the Indigenous people how to put a holistic culture of who we are and what we are and make a real effort to understand everything within a broad context and not divide it into bits. What I want to start with is a phrase I've been using a lot because I think it's actually really cogent to what we're trying to talk about. We live in a society, not an economy. Parche, John. I know we've just had the economist talking. But I think we need to seriously think about the fact that we have lost a lot of the ideas which makes us social beings. When's the last time you heard people talking about a common good, talking about things that are social well-being? We talk entirely in material terms about the economy, about gross domestic product, which is gross, not domestic, and definitely in many cases non-productive. So, and I want to bring this up because I think there's a serious issue here that we need to understand. As I say, I'm a sociologist. And I know one of the things about sociology and the social sciences generally, again, part of the economists, is unlike some of the hard sciences, and I know there's debates about uncertainty principles there too, but the social sciences deal with the probability of human beings behaving in particular ways. We have very few rules in the social sciences, which economists don't understand, which says if A, therefore B. Causality is much more complex when we're dealing with human society. And that's one of the problems we've got at the moment. We have subjected the population of most of the Western democratic countries and some others, including China, with the idea that what counts is economics, which is about materialism, particularly the neoliberal model. It's about traded goods and traded services it doesn't deal with unpaid work, it doesn't deal with ethics, it doesn't deal with feelings, it doesn't deal with emotions. It doesn't deal with the fact that human beings are social beings. And what's important to us is who we are, where we are, who we are connected to, where we belong, that we're respected, that we have a sense of agency, that we both are being taken care of and we can contribute. Now the reason I'm raising this is because I think one of the things that's very important and I'm going to throw this challenge out to everybody here, is one of the reasons we have this huge populist movement at the moment in every area that you can think of, is because we have actually lost sight of the fact that we're a society. Those in power have only talked about the individual 
and the fact that we are all self-interested dead shits who are there in order to provide for ourselves. So we have no sense about being social, no sense about being connected. Despite the fact human beings are connected, we are born very connected, literally. That's one thing that women know about. And we have a long period of growing up where we need other people. And what we need to do is recognise that that sense of belonging, that sense of being connected, that sense of being valued is really important to who we are and how we feel about ourselves. And one of the things that I think economics has done is it has undermined for a lot of people in the community the sense that we have a community. It's undermined the idea that government is there to serve the people. It only confirms the fact that government is there to serve the economy. We keep cutting social programs. We buggered up childcare because it only is available now for women who have got jobs, paid jobs. We put paid work on a pedestal as though it's the only thing that matters. We've moved away from the idea that the contributions that we make unpaid in relationships and things don't matter. And government is not seen as something that's there that owns things and shares things and takes care of people. It was always a bit dicey in that area, but at least it was there. Now you can't even find government departments there online. They don't offer services anymore, they contract them out. So it's disappeared from view. So people don't trust government, and guess what? They don't trust other people in authority. Populism is a big sign, which you can go back to the 1930s and look at, is when people lose faith in the democratic system and they lose faith in the people that are running the place and the people in power really lose faith, then they start looking for people like them. That's when you get nationalism, that's when you get fascism, that's when you get Nazism, that's when you get some of the anti-Muslim type stuff that we're hearing at the moment with this stupid crap about Australian values. When I raised it this morning, I was on ABC News 24 with Anne Henderson, and I raised the fact that all of the stuff that they were crapping on about these questions on Australian values were designed to target Muslims and make people feel bad about the fact that they couldn't be Australian citizens. And I really thought it was important that we actually recognise that this was racist. She said, but you've got to respond to what the people want. And my response to that was, try 1930s Germany. And she then said to me, oh, you're raising the Hitler thing. And I said, I'm entitled to because I was actually a victim of Hitler. I'm a refugee child. I was born three weeks before Hitler marched into Vienna to Jewish parents, which was a bad choice. So we had to get out of there. And I just think we need to remember what happens when a civilised country loses its sense of of belonging into a sort of much more than just a nation which is actually on about itself. That's what happened, and we've got to make sure it doesn't happen here. The revolt against science, like the revolt against a lot of other things which are about knowledge and understanding, are a sign of people who feel desperately insecure and want to go only associate with people like them. It's no use abusing them. It's no use calling them uneducated and stupid and all of the other things. If we start doing that, we add to the damage. Because many of them aren't. They're people who are bewildered, confused, and don't know what to do. 
One of the things that we do have to do, and this is the challenge I'm throwing out to you, is if we are serious about trying to rebuild the deficit in trust of other people, which is at the basis of all of this prejudice and nastiness, the de trust deficit that is much worse than the bloody stupid uh, budget deficit, is something that we need to start rebuilding. And if we're going to rebuild that, rather than just protesting, which is important and it's a good way of catching up and, and creating energy, we also need to build alternatives. At the moment, unfortunately, the progressive side of politics is more tied up with objecting to what it doesn't like, and we have to put our heads together and work out what we do like. Protests don't work unless you have alternatives. So I want to throw out the challenge here is taking on the fact that human beings are not perfect and not predictable, taking on the fact that we have a really serious problem with trust and, and the sense of belonging in a diverse area, so people are shrinking it back into people like me. What we need to do to say there are alternatives, we need to put the idea of utopia back on the thing. Somebody said to me, but that's dumb stuff. I thought, no. Utopia, and I'm using Oscar Wilde's definition, is the next island to the one you just landed on. In other words, it's a vision of the fact that we can create positive change. And the message that needs to come out of a lot of this stuff is not despair, but the fact that change is possible, because if change isn't possible, if you tell people horror stories about what's going to happen in the environment and the death and end of everything, people stop listening. If you want people to listen, you've got to say, yes, we have these crises, but there are ways out. And if you can't, if they're not out there now, bloody well think of them and work them out because that's the only way we're going to fix it. Thank you. I represent Friends of CSIRO. I'm the coordinator in New South Wales. So Friends of CSIRO was started by a person who's not associated with CSIRO. She's actually a documentary maker of science. And she did a, a documentary on science, uh, climate change. And when she found out that the climate science group was being cut at CSIRO, she decided to form Friends of CSIRO in support. So since uh, the last 20 years, the numbers of staff at CSIRO have fallen dramatically, and particularly so in 2014 when Tony Abbott was Prime Minister. Friends of CSIRO is committed to trying to get the, uh, stop the budget cuts and in fact to get increased budgets so that more scientists can be supported and CSIRO can continue to do the job, good job it has been doing. We're especially interested in getting the budget to higher levels so that CSIRO scientists can continue to do public good research. So that's research that's good for the Australian public rather than increasing the amount of contract research they're currently doing for companies in order to keep their staff numbers up. Their current head of CSIRO actually officially banned public good research for a little while, didn't he? Yes, I've heard that. I'm not within CSIRO now, so I don't know the details of that, but that is a real worry for us. CSIRO's charter states that it should do public good research. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. My name's Angela. I'm from the University of New South Wales. I'm marching for a whole lot of reasons. I support science literacy and science communication. But I really, I think this march in particular is about trying to send a signal to our legislators, policy makers, 
politicians and hopefully also the media that the, the public, and I'm a scientist, but you know, I'm also a member of the public, I also live in the real world, we care about science. We think it's one of the best processes we have of trying to make good decisions, you know, evidence-based, reiterated, reproducibility, taking a bulk of information over a long period of time, and using that to help us to make good, good decisions. And I feel like that's not happening at the moment as much as it could. There's a lot of threats to funding for scientific institutions around the world and in Australia as well. And I hope that this march helps those people, hopefully they're watching and paying attention, um, that we do, we care about this. We also vote. And if I don't see these sorts of things happening that I would like to see, I will be voting accordingly. Well, Angela, thank you very much. You're welcome. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your own voice on radio? Go to the website, click on the tab on the right to send a voicemail to be played on air. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Support the show at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. The news music was Rhinos theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on 27 stations on the Community Radio Network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, and 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station, and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 900 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash C slash Diffusion Radio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.